2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-21. through 21. This is God's Word to us. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men, who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It's the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Remind them of these things. Charge them before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. Set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. At the Ordination Council, following our affirmation, the the Council signed a certificate uh, of ordination uh, that will um, later be frameable for Tom, and I would like the Chairman of our Elder Board, Bob Iwig, to present that to Tom at this time. First of all, let me say what a joy and a privilege it is to stand before the Congregation of Fellowship Bible Church. And on behalf of the elders of this church, as well as the entire ordination council, affirm Tom as a minister of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's certainly been a privilege. Tom did an outstanding job at the ordination council. You can imagine it took a lot of preparation time. It's not easy to sit there and get a lot of questions. 
the council was very impressed with Tom's confidence in terms of how he handled the questions, his knowledge of the Word of God, and uh, we were all uh, just so encouraged by his testimony and his life. And what a privilege it's been, right, to have a missionary from the field home amongst us, being able to get to know them, think how we're going to be able to pray for them and have such an important stake in their ministry when they return. It's been a blessing, Tom, and so on behalf of the entire Ordination Council and the elders of Fellowship Bible Church, I present to you this certificate of ordination. Thank you so much. Tom, we do so appreciate your partnership in ministry. And at this time, I'd like you to stand center pulpit and the elders gather around for the laying on of hands in a dedicatory prayer. Let's pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, we are here today rejoicing in the privilege of acknowledging what you have already done. We realize that you, by the Spirit of God, have selected Tom. You have ordained him to the gospel ministry, and we are here to recognize your work in his life. And we give you praise and thanksgiving for what you have done, for where you have placed him, for the abilities you have given to him. And our desire today is for you to continue your good work in his life, the life of his wife, along with him. We pray, Lord, that you would give them grace in days to come, that they might be patient with the sheep, that they might uh, encourage and strengthen those that they meet. We pray that you would give them wisdom, that they might understand how to present the truth clearly, that they might understand false doctrine and be able to counteract it. We ask that you would give them boldness, that they might proclaim the truth of your word with clarity. And we pray that in all of this, you would protect and give them much fruit for their labors. We commend him to you and to your grace with thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen. Father God, as we continue in prayer, we thank you for the great privilege of standing before your people this morning to designate one father, as uh, has already been prayed by Brother Jim, whom you have chosen, a vessel for honor, a vessel for servanthood. We thank you, Father, for our brother, for Heidi, for the family as they stand with him. We thank you, Lord, for his humility, for his desire to serve, for his love of Christ, his desire to get ever deeper into the Word of God and to teach it to others. Bless this family, Father. Bless the ministry. Bless this man whom you have chosen. Place him, Father, where you will. Use him. Use him well. As uh, he and Heidi uh, potentially return to areas of, of great danger, 
We pray your protecting hand over them, Father. And as Tom journeys back in January, special travel mercies for him. Give him a productive time there with the staff, getting to know uh, his, uh, his new role and uh, in preparation to serve you in ever greater ways. Thank you once again for this time, Father, for this brother whom has, uh, stand, stands now before you, willing to lay down his life for Christ. And we pray, Father, that you'll give him a long time to serve. Bless them both in Jesus' precious name. Amen. 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 So thank you for thank you, my brother, over uh, uh, and above all that I can say. Uh, when Pastor Van was giving a, an excellent summary of the reason I approached him for ordination, it made it all sound very, uh, very uh, matter of fact, almost that it's what the field is requiring, so I should do it. But let me say that this was this was a very meaningful time in my life uh, for for going through the process. Uh, I really want to thank Pastor Van for taking the leadership and making it meaningful. When we were in discussion, one of the things that he had mentioned was that it should be something that was encouraging, and it really was encouraging. Uh, as, as much as I've stood in front of classrooms of Nigerians and Americans and, and have answered questions and have taught, uh, it, it was a, a time coming up to ordination where I had to, again, think about what the Lord has called me to do. And for that reason, if nothing else, for that reason, it reaffirmed God's call on my life, which I guess we all need to do at times, don't we? We need to step back and see what God has, has uh, laid on our hearts and, and whether we're being faithful to it. So for, for that, I say thank you for making it a very meaningful experience. During that time, for two and a half hours of asking questions, I thought it was fun, actually. It's, it's what I do for a living, and I mentioned that to my wife at halftime, well, the, the intermission, uh, 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 the break that we had, that, that I'm having fun, and to which her reply is, you're weird. <laughs> uh, so, it was a, so that part was enjoyable, but also having fellow ministers, fellow elders recognize the calling of God on anyone's life is an awesome experience. It puts a, a level of accountability on us men that... Uh, uh, that, that the, the rest of the body of Christ can then count on, and it creates an accountability within us that says, I need to be faithful to God and to, like First Peter 5 says, to the flock. So I'm really grateful for FBC for taking the lead in this, for the, the prayers, for the, uh, for the experience of going through this ordination process. So thank you. Amen. To God be the glory. Thank you, Tom, and thank you, elders and pastors, for um, uh, this special time that we've had in planning and presenting and preparing Tom for all of this. Thank you for your ongoing prayers for the spiritual leadership of the church. It's very important. These are interesting days in which to serve the Lord. Let's bow in prayer, please. Father, we humble our hearts and bow our heads before you, and we are so grateful for your amazing grace today. Father, all of the rot and the sin, positional and in practice, is gone by your grace. 
Thank you that you've uh, seated us in the heavenlies. Thank you for the work of grace that is ongoing in our lives. Thank you for our church. And thank you for the work of grace you did in the heart of a 17-year-old kid in the middle of the night named Tom Jesserin. And how you've continued to work that work of grace in his life. And how he's become a great testimony of your grace to the church around the world. Father, as we reach for our Bibles and as we continue to think about what it means to be qualified to lead and to be a spiritual leader, would you use this time well? Would you encourage our hearts and strengthen our weak knees, empower our feeble hands, clear our foggy minds and eyes, that we would have purpose and direction and strength and courage and confidence in this sinful, wicked world, that we as your church would shine brightly in the darkness. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. You do not have to read your Bible very long or very far to recognize that in the Scripture we have testimony and teaching one upon another exemplifying how much God cares about qualified spiritual leadership. God cares about who leads His people. We have the most dramatic examples of this in the Old Testament. We have the most specific teaching about this in the New Testament. Let me remind you of just a couple of some of the most dramatic moments recorded for us in history. Moments that were horrible. And they focus specifically upon the reality that God cared about who was leading his people spiritually. You'll recall that Moses was up on the mountain with his servant Joshua receiving the Ten Commandments as they came down after 40 days away from the people. They heard, Joshua thought he heard, and Moses, they thought they heard the sounds of war. There was such chaos and just a cacophony of noise and disorder in the Israelite camp. They thought they were under attack. As they came closer, they recognized that there was nothing other than a pagan orgy taking place. The people had convinced Aaron, the priest, to form a gold calf, which he did. They worshipped that calf. They stripped their clothes off. Idolatry and immorality always go hand in hand in any culture. It's interesting. Moses is so distressed, but he's not as distressed as God is, as God sees that there's been a capitulation and there's been a lack of spiritual oversight and that the people are leading and that the spiritual leaders are not leading, that he... He cries out to to Moses to move aside. And he says in Exodus chapter 32, verse 10, he says, Let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. The people of Israel were within a, a hair's breadth, whatever that is, of being consumed, annihilated off the face of the earth and God's starting over. Moses does what spiritual leaders do at that time. He interceded for the people. Yes, he was angry. In fact, he was so upset that he smashed the stone tablets in his angst and anger. What an incredible moment it was when Moses goes in, confronts the people harshly, strongly, directly, takes the gold calf, 
burns it, grinds it up into powder, puts it in their drinking water, makes them drink it so that they'll urinate their new God out on the ground. And he starts over. God cares about spiritual leadership. I mean, what a dramatic moment when the fire consumed Nadab and Abihu. What an incredible moment in Numbers chapter 16 when the sons of Korah, who were not qualified for spiritual leadership, tried to stand in against Moses in leadership and God opened the earth and swallowed them up, their tents and their families. In 1 Samuel 15, there is hardly a more dramatic moment when God's prophet Samuel confronts Saul, who was disobedient and now had disqualified himself for spiritual leadership. He thumps him on the chest and he said, you have disobeyed and God is through with you. God cares about spiritual leadership. Samuel himself, the man of God, picks up his sword after he communicates God's message to Saul, picks up his sword and he hews in pieces King Agag of the Amalekites before the Lord at Gilgal. What a horrible moment. All because of spiritual leadership mattering to God. In the New Testament, we have great detail given to us about the church. Interestingly enough, the things of which the church finds itself divided most often and fighting over from within, you know, things like, should we have a Sunday evening service? Should we have drums, guitars, pianos, violins, Hammond organs? Should we raise our hands or not raise our hands? The Bible doesn't really give too much specific instruction about that. God just doesn't care too much about those things. God doesn't tell us whether to have Sunday school and then church or church then Sunday school. There is no model for the schedule of the local church. He just says, get together. He says, focus on my word. And he says, break bread together. Meet one another's needs together. Pray for one another. Encourage one another. He doesn't tell you how often. He doesn't tell you what schedule. He just says, do it. But he says this, in every local body, appoint elders to oversee and guard and protect. And he goes to great detail in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and even 1 Peter 5. And he said, these and these alone are fit to lead in my local church. And every time you appoint leadership that does not meet the standard of New Testament, biblically qualified leadership in the New Testament church, you end up in chaos and division and spoiling the testimony and the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the gospel is rendered ineffective in that area. You've seen it. Some of you have lived it. Some of you have been a part of church splits. And almost always it can be defined down to unqualified leadership. To a less than godly, biblical, Christ-centered standard, qualified biblical leaders. In Acts chapter 20, as the Apostle Paul is bidding farewell to the Ephesian elders in one of the most emotional passages in Scripture, they literally hold him and weep on him, believing they will never see him again. Understanding that he is most likely to be martyred for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul warns the Ephesian elders in no unspecific terms. And he says, guard the flock. Now there's the word that is used most frequently in the New Testament to represent the congregation of believers in the church. Sheep, flocks, needing shepherding. 
oversight. Peter used the phrase in 1 Peter 5, 5, shepherd the flock over which God has called you and appointed you. But Paul looked at the Ephesian elders and he reminded them that among the flock there would be some wolves who would deceive and they would come in among them and they would disguise themselves as sheep. But a wolf is a wolf. And he can only be with the sheep for so long before he begins to bite and devour and destroy. I will never remember at about age, never forget, excuse me, at about the age 16, I do remember, I will never forget, when I was about age 16 and my dad said to me, Van, let's go. I said, where are we going? He said, Mr. Harmon called and dogs, wild dogs have gotten into his sheep. We got in the car and we drove out this country road outside of Vicksburg, Michigan on W Avenue there. And old Laverne Harmon, an an ancient stonemason who loved the Lord with all his heart and his wife, servants to our little Bible church in Vicksburg, had a hobby farm in his retirement. And he had about 30 sheep. And as we drove down his long lane and his old rickety buildings and his crooked fences, we saw them, dead sheep piled up into a barbed wire fence here, dead sheep down in a ditch over here. At least 15 or 17 sheep, if I recall, were killed that day by wild dogs while the shepherd slept in the night. Spiritual leadership matters to God. When wolves come in among the congregation, it is devastating. And so God holds the standard high. I want to use as a model for us of the relationship between the local church and spiritual leadership and how that works together and how we send out leaders as a reminder of the importance of this as well as a model to us here at Fellowship Bible Church. And what a great church we have to use as a model. It's the church at Antioch and I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 13. You know that the book of Acts follows the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the book of Acts is spelled A-C-T-S, not A-X-E. All right? And so it's Acts, A-C-T, as in actions. The things that the apostles did. And in your subtitle of your book of Acts in your New Testament, it might even say the Acts of the Apostle. And they were not... Timbermen, they did not cut trees with axes, but they were in action as leaders in the church. And the book of Acts, following the gospel testimony of our New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where we are given the recorded life testimony of our Lord Jesus and his ministry, particularly for the four, four years, is followed immediately by his ascension into heaven and then the planting of churches in the great missionary movement particularly led by the Apostle Paul. When you read the book of Acts, the first half of it, the first 12 chapters, primarily focus on a great leader, Peter, in the local church. And Peter was a minister to the, to the Gentiles, to the Jews. And Paul was called to minister to the Gentiles. And the last half of the book of Acts, starting with chapter 13 on, is particularly about the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. And we have numerous testimonies of their activities and their journeys and their church planting. 
And we encounter so much. It's a very interesting book. It's a fast-paced book. There are some sections of it that give extended messages so that we have, in essence, a word-for-word recording of what the what Stephen and Peter and Paul preached. We have in Acts the remarkable and outstanding testimony of Saul of Tarsus, who becomes the mighty Apostle Paul, church planter, missionary, elder to the local church, overseer to the churches. Earlier in the book of Acts, it begins with a focal point in Jerusalem. And we see there that the church in Jerusalem is established. It becomes a mighty church. Thousands of people added even daily to the, to the church. In Acts chapter 12 and Acts chapter 13, we have a focus on another great church, a church called Antioch. Away from Jerusalem, planted by the church in Jerusalem, and needed by the church in Jerusalem in, in that uh, there became a difficult season in the early church here. And namely what's happening at about this time when we pick up chapter 13 is that the church in Jerusalem is going to enter a season where they are um, hungry. There's famine. And the believers in Antioch will be exhorted to give and, and they will ta- help take care of the church at Jerusalem that first gave to them spiritually, they then will return the favor physically, meeting their physical needs after the church in Jerusalem had ministered to them spiritually. This church at Antioch is a, is a great church. They're a sending church. They're a Christ-centered church. In fact, this is the church where believers were first called Christians. Little Christ's. That's what it means. It was, it was a derogatory term. By those who were in Judaism and those who were outside of the church, they called them, you, you Christians. The Christians, being a little bit odd, we are, decided that it was not derogatory to be called a little Christ. And in fact, as the pagans looked at them and mocked them and put them down and called them, you disgusting little Christs, you Christians, they decided that that was quite a term of honor. Indeed, you can call me a little Christ anytime you want. I will bear the name of Christ with great joy. And so the name Christian stuck. And to this day, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ around the world are known as Christians. Given first by pagans as a derogatory name and term, taken and turned into a title of great delight by believers in the Lord Christ. When we uh, begin in chapter 13, we have just three verses that I want to use as our text. And I just want to unfold this and see what's happening. And I want us to learn some lessons about the relationship between qualified spiritual leadership and the launching point of the local church, how that works together and fits together. Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, let's read our text. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menane, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. 
The first thing I want you to see as we use Antioch as a model is I want you to see that these are critical times. These are critical times. And for you to see that, you actually need to turn the page back once if it's not on the same page. And I want you to just put your eyes across chapter 12 of Acts. And I want you to take in for just a minute the context historically and the timing in which the church at Antioch is raising up spiritual leaders and sending them out. These are critical times. Critical in that we begin chapter 12 with the fact that James is executed. Listen, this is an inner circle, top shelf guy. You remember the phrase, Peter, James, and John, right? How those three were very close to our Lord as disciples. He's one of the apostles, You have John the Beloved. It's almost like there was a pyramid in the life of our Lord of influence, a pyramid of influence. The Lord Jesus allowed John to be closest to him. It was though it was his dearest son in the faith. And the Lord Jesus had such an impact on John. It comes through in his writings. And then he had the three, Peter, James, and John together. And then he had the twelve as he had this This overflow of influence and teaching as a rabbi. This is the James of Peter, James, and John. And it says in 12.1, And at that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. These are critical times. James is executed with a sword. Peter is thrown in jail. The entire church knows about this. The entire church is grieving. The entire church is stunned. And the entire church is afraid. The church then goes into an intense time of prayer. And this is that great story where Peter is released by the angels in the middle of the night. And in fact, the church has been at prayer evidently all night long. And it's the wee hours of the morning. And they're sleepy. They've hidden themselves away in an upper room of a house. Peter knows where they would have gathered. He goes and knocks on the door. And that's when the young girl comes to the door and she sees Peter and she runs upstairs and says she's seen an angel or a ghost. Peter has to keep knocking on the door to let him in. Their prayers had been answered. Listen, here's what I mean about the historical context. The emotional reality of what's happening in these critical times. One of their main leaders executed with a sword, his head cut off. One of their other main courageous leaders put in jail with the reality being that you're next to get your throat cut. So much so that the church is stunned and shocked and they've called all night prayer meetings. We haven't done that. We live in relative comfort and ease to the degree that we even forget to pray. And so you need to see that these were critical times when the church at Antioch was thriving. There was political unrest and there was economic hardship. You see in verse 20 that Herod was angry with the people because of Peter and the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, They asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. Food was hard to get. It was a difficult time. It was an upsetting time. It was not an easy time to be a Christian. But I want you to see number two in this passage, that these were productive days for the church. 
These were critical times for the church, but these were productive days for the church. Look at verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. You know that we need to be praying for Tom and Heidi regularly now. In a few months, they are targeting returning to Nigeria. Do you know that it's critical times in Nigeria? Right where they serve, across the midline of the country, in the cities where they regularly frequent and where they live, there's church bombings, there's executions, there's bloodshed, there's brutality, there's raping, there's kidnapping of young girls. And they will stick out like a neon light there as Americans. Tom is a leader in the church. He's called to minister at a time where it's just critical in the country. And Islam is trying to take over and to obliterate the church. Just like Herod was trying to obliterate the church in Acts chapter 13. And yet in the context of those critical times, they were productive days of ministry. And I would anticipate that as Tom returns and as he sets, uh, stands in his position of leadership that we will hear great reports about how God is at work in the church. It's the testimony of history, isn't it? That when the church is persecuted, it grows. For one thing, the goats and the sheep are separated, aren't they? For one thing, the people who aren't serious are gone. And the chameleons are gone. And the hypocrites and the fakes. And there is an authenticity to the believer's faith that is generated in this hot bed of persecution. But we need to pray for Tom and Heidi. I remember when Tom came into church some weeks after he had been here, he said, I feel relaxed this morning coming into church. I said, what do you mean? He said, it's very stressful to go to church in Nigeria. What do you mean by that? He said, well, the first thing you do when you enter is you look around and you see if you see anybody that might be a suicide bomber. And you're anticipating in the church service that a suitcase bomb could go off. That the building's been sabotaged. That there could be slaughter and nuts and bolts and barbed wire spraying across the body. Shredding people, boys, girls, women. As this horrible dearth of Islam tries to take over the world. Straight from the pit of hell. We need to pray that as they go back, there would be a boldness and a courage and that we would see a productivity for the gospel that is just amazing and it is led by the Spirit. These were critical times. These were productive t days, though, as even in difficulty, God grows the church. Now, I want you to see the next thing we see that we have evidenced in the church is qualified men, 13.1, qualified men. There were qualified men in the church now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manain, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. I find it interesting that Luke, who's the writer of Acts, a historian, records these names. Evidently these men were so outstanding. I don't think in any way that it was a sum total of all of the men who were in leadership at the church at Antioch. But these surfaced. These were men who, when he thought of the church at Antioch, these guys came to his mind. Tom, you've become like that at fellowship a little bit. When we think of the leaders at fellowship, we think of Tom Jesserin, don't we? Somebody who surfaces. There are many qualified leaders at fellowship. 
Do you praise God for the strong men of Fellowship Bible Church? I do. I can't do this task alone. And God has raised up strong men around us. And of of those men, some had surfaced in Antioch. Interesting, number one, that it was a culturally diverse group. We haven't done so well at that yet here at Fellowship. We are who we are, and I trust that we're a loving, gracious body of believers. But in Antioch, there was enough of a melting pot, and there were no other alternatives for churches that they came together. And it's interesting to note the cultural diversity. Niger means black. It is likely that he was an African. Lucius was from Cyrene. Lucius was from the city of Cyrene. That's in North Africa. And so he was likely to be darker skinned or of another nationality. So not only were they culturally diverse, but they were strategically connected. They were strategically connected. Notice that it says that Menain was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Herod was their king at this time here in, or in the New Testament. He's the main Herod, this Herod uh, that you read about. And uh, the idea here in the ESV says it's translated lifelong friend. In the New American Standard, it uses the phrase had been brought up with Herod. It's a Greek word that I understand from Bible commentaries could be translated accurately a foster child. The idea that they possibly were raised in the very same household Where Herod was raised, this um, Menane was raised, and he was raised as either a very close friend or possibly even a foster brother in the same household. And he knew him. He was connected. And somewhere along the line, he was gloriously reached by the Spirit of God through the gospel and the preaching of the apostles. And he was born again, and he was part of the church at Antioch. Isn't it interesting all of the combinations of people God brings to the church? I, am, I never cease to be amazed at the stories that are represented and the connections of the body of Christ. And I think that only strengthens us. And it also door, opens doors of opportunity. Evidently, Menane's connection with the Herod did not do much for protecting the church. Not only was it, uh, these, were these qualified men diverse culturally and connected strategically, but they were gifted spiritually. Notice what he says. What stands out to Luke was that they were prophets and teachers. And when he thought of the prophets and teachers in the church at Antioch, he named off these guys. What a prophet in the early church. Remember that the scriptures were not bound together like this. The New Testament was just being written and recorded. They did indeed have the the parchments of the Old Testament. They had the prophets. They had Moses. They had the Psalms. They had the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, and indeed they studied it. The prophets, though, were men who would stand before the church and be the preachers. They would proclaim truth the loudest. They were the protectors of of the church. Even in the early church at this time, as their spiritual gift moved, there was some prophetic utterance that was going on. Not in ecstatic utterances, words that were meaningless, but in clear, direct word, God was revealing truth to the church through His prophets. It's a gift that faded in use as as the Scriptures are completed and we have an authoritative, sufficient Word of God. Those with the spirit of a prophet today are the defenders of the faith. There are those who are not afraid to stand up on the city square and proclaim truth. 
There are those who recognize the wolves almost always the, the first at first. They see right from wrong in very distinct black and white, very distinct. They don't like to compromise at all. And then the teachers, those are the ones who, they often don't like to speak so loudly, but maybe they like to speak longly. And they love to, they love to just unfold the scriptures and they love to discover new truth. And God uses both in the church. And at this time in the church at Antioch, he was using the prophets to protect and to proclaim truth and to point people to Christ and to Scripture. And he was using the teachers to unfold the Scripture so that the people were being discipled and they were growing. What is Tom Jesserin? Prophet or a teacher? He can be loud, but he's pretty much a teacher, isn't he? He loves to teach Tom, a word of exhortation from your stateside pastor who knows very little about your work in Nigeria is to be careful in your administrative leadership position not to neglect your gift of teaching. You are a teacher, and perhaps this opportunity in administration and in field leadership will allow you, even at a higher level of influence, to teach the teachers and the pastors with even more influence and impact. We'll be praying to that end that your gift of teaching will not be neglected. And thank you, as we've already stated, for your great gift of teaching in our church. But notice that these were qualified men. Their spiritual gifts were noted, and they were servants to the church. So these were critical times, productive days, though. We see qualified men in the church. We also see, though, that this Antioch church is a worshiping church. Notice in verse 2 that it says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. They were a worshiping church. And isn't it interesting that it is in the context of worship that the Spirit of God moves and makes His will known? I've found that to be true in my life. How about you? That it is in the time of corporate gathering and we're worshiping, and the Word of God is being preached, the congregation is united. And the hearts are being lifted in joy as we sing together. It's then when God stirs your heart, isn't it? It's then when God moves. I can remember at age 12 being a part of one of those services. And the music and the singing and the fellowship of our gathered Bible churches at a Round Robin Missions Conference stirred my heart to the degree that at the altar call I came forward at age 12, dedicated my life to the Lord. And I point to that moment as God calling me into ministry. How about you? Does the Spirit of God speak to you during the ministry of the Word, during the singing, pointing out sin, convicting you of, of uh, matters that need to be dealt with in your life, and making His will known to you? In the context of this worshiping church, God speaks. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, then the Holy Spirit said, number five, I want you to see that there was a sovereign call. For ministers in the church, there was a sovereign call. We don't know from the text how the Spirit of God spoke. We don't know how He made Himself clear. In my opinion, it is most likely to believe that one of the prophets spoke. That one of the prophets, moved by the Holy Spirit, gave the message to the church. But it is interesting that it was a specific call, even though it was a sovereign call. God appointed, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, making it clear to the church... He identified and he set apart, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas is one of the great leaders that was there referenced earlier. Barnabas was his nickname. It means the son of encouragement. He was the one that when he walked in, everybody was so glad he was there. 
When Barnabas was around, the church was refreshed. When people got a little bit stressed out and didn't know how things were going to work out financially at the church, all of a sudden somebody would give a gift financially to the church. It was almost always Barnabas. He evidently had some resource and some wealth. He was known for selling property and giving generously to the church. And he encouraged. Another thing that he did that was so significant is that earlier on in Acts, when the church was cowering and afraid of the persecutor Saul, he put his arm around the convert Saul, who was becoming the Apostle Paul, and he brought him in and he gave him credibility in front of the people. And he said, this is our brother in Christ. And if Barnabas had a brother in Christ, then he became a brother in Christ to the entire flock. What a dear brother Barnabas was. And then this Saul, still calling him Saul, this is Paul, who is at the beginning, the front end of his great work for the gospel. They received this sovereign, specific call. But I want you to notice that the church was characterized by surrendered hearts, by surrendered hearts. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work of which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they had sensitive hearts. They heard the Holy Spirit's call for one thing, right? That's a sensitivity. Secondly, here's a sensitive part of being the church. Are we willing to release our finest leaders to the call of the gospel elsewhere? Notice that of all people... They probably were just fascinated by Saul and his ministry. They couldn't get enough of this guy. It probably in some days cracked them up to believe that this was Saul the persecutor. And this guy could expound the Old Testament like no one else. He was above and beyond everyone else in his understanding of the Old Testament. And something Saul could do for the church is he could show them Christ in the Old Testament. He could unfold Isaiah And he could unfold Daniel. And he could unfold Moses. And he could unfold the Psalms. And he could show you Christ. And he brought it alive to the church. And now he's being called out of the church. And Barnabas, the one who just helps us all get along, he's being called out. A spiritual sensitivity to the leading of the Holy Spirit on both ends. The men know the call is upon them. And the church recognizes that call. And the church is willing to be used of God by releasing them. Standing with them and supporting them. Listen to me, church. We're not doing a good enough job supporting our missionaries even. We're too caught up in our own agendas. We're not communicating effectively enough. We're not praying enough and we're not giving enough. I think all but one or two of our missionaries have shortfalls in support. Shame on Fellowship Bible Church for ever having a missionary who's short on support as wealthy as we are. Where is our spiritual sensitivity? Releasing them. Supporting them. But I want you to see that they had surrendered hearts. They were fasting. They were praying. They released these men. And then it was a unified church. They gathered around and they laid their hands on them and sent them off. What is this laying on of the hands? They, they laid hands on them. He was already, they were already ordained. This was not ordination in this passage, I don't think. I think that it it was, though, I think a mark, number one, a mark of affirmation. It was a part, a way for the church. And I think that's what we did today as well. The other day we ordained Tom and the council laid hands on him, affirming his ordination with the laying on of hands. Today, as the elders stood in proxy for the church, laying hands on Tom, it was an affirmation, isn't it? Saying, we believe in your ministry. 
The second thing I think it is, is that it is a mark of qualification. It's a mark of recognition that you are qualified to do this. We don't lay hands and pray over people who are not qualified. It's a serious matter. Thirdly, it is a point, I think, in here in verse 3, it is a mark of identification saying, not only do we believe in your mission, but it is a mark of identification to the point that we, we stand with you. Wherever you are, know that you have us back home. Tom and Heidi always know you can call Fellowship Bible Church. Amen? Amen. They need anything. They can call Fellowship Bible Church. Conclusion. Number one, these are critical days. We need qualified spiritual leaders. Young men in the room, do you aspire to spiritual leadership in God's church? Young men and women in the room, old men and women in the room, middle-aged men and women in the church, we need spiritually qualified leaders for the gospel. Step up. Number two, we must be a worshiping church because it's as we worship that Christ reveals His will to us. We must stay focused on Christ in our worship and He will get us where, he, where we belong. Number three, we must have surrendered hearts. This church had a surrendered heart. Barnabas and Saul had surrendered hearts. Tom Jesserin has a surrendered heart. Those are the people God uses Are you holding back on God today or is your heart surrendered? Where's the young people from Fellowship Bible Church committing their life to full-time Christian service, going off to Bible college to prepare for the work of the ministry? Where are they? We have a few young people in Bible college. Where's God's call? Are we listening, young men, for God's call for the ministry? Young women... God's call to to be a part of the mission field, to be a pastor's wife, to be teaching the gospel to children and to be a part of the church and to be an encourager of other women and to maximize your potential in the church. Are we a sensitive church to God's call? I trust that we are as we see how the church and qualified spiritual leadership fits together. One springs from the other. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for this model of the church at Antioch. It encourages us and it challenges us. And I just pray, Lord, that you would help us to surrender to you. Will you just examine your heart for a moment? We'll depart in moments. Can you sing with true meaning? The hymn we're going to close with, I surrender all, all to Jesus, I surrender. Maybe today is a day of surrender and calling on the life of some young person or anyone older. And that out of the, out of the congregation will flow qualified spiritual leadership, just like the model in Antioch. Out of their worship services, God called. And they responded. What's your heart telling you? What's the Spirit of God making clear to you? Father, move among us. Teach us. Grow us. Help us to be useful vessels. Help us to be surrendered to you completely. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.